nowhere more so, perhaps, than in the fields of magic and spirituality do we run up against the danger of ego inflation, the danger of falling into the trap whereby it seems that our experiences seem to confirm that we're something very special indeed, something beyond the ordinary, that there's something about us, just us and nobody else, that means we're set apart, we're special, and therefore the normal rules of being human no longer apply to us. It's a very common form of mystical experience to discover ourselves in realms where we can perceive in a very direct sense how our nature as a human being intersects with the nature of the divine. We can come to experience in a very direct, incontrovertible way how our nature as a human being is akin to the divine, how, in a sense, we are God. In the grip of such an experience, the magician, the spiritual seeker, is in danger of losing a certain sense of perspective. Hopefully, the skills and abilities that we've developed to bring us to this point in the path will see us through, enable us not to terminate our investigations prematurely, but will enable us to continue to surrender into the truth of our experience and hopefully begin to recognise and understand that relationship between our humanity and divinity as something even more wonderful, even more miraculous than a simple equation. In the course of a magical or spiritual career, it's quite likely that we will fall into periods of ego inflation, self-aggrandizement. Hopefully, we'll be able to recover, realise our mistake and move on. If we fall into this trap, there's no denying that there can be negative consequences, both for ourselves and for those close to us. And neither can it be denied, unfortunately, that sometimes some people fall into this trap and may never completely extricate themselves from it. However, suppose if, in order to prevent ourselves from ever running into the risk of this, we chose instead to minimise the chance 
of us ever running into any experience of ego inflation or self-aggrandizement. Suppose we made sure never to indulge too far in any practice that led to the experience of our own divine nature. Or suppose we steered clear of any kind of thinking at all that might encourage us to view ourselves or our experience as being in any way unique or special or precious or valuable above anything else whatsoever in creation. Would the adoption of measures like this to rule out any possibility of ego inflation actually amount to any less of a trap. I'm not sure that eradicating any possibility of a direct experiential encounter with the divine is actually in practice to remain faithful to what the nature of human experience actually is in the attempt to avoid altogether the danger of ego inflation maybe there's also the trap of throwing out the baby with the bathwater if we're not in danger constantly of self-aggrandizement, of losing a wholesome perspective on who and what we are, then possibly that's not the path of a magician, a spiritual seeker, but instead the path of someone merely adhering to a consensus view of what being human means. There's a dynamic here, an important one, and it isn't limited just to magic and mysticism. It's a dynamic we can see at work through various levels of our daily lives. And it can be an important one to recognize Suppose we set out to achieve something important to us, and happily, we're incredibly successful. There's something worthy of recognition there, of course. There's something of value to be cherished and protected. But all of us will be familiar to some degree with the figure of the person who comes to believe in their own bullshit. The person who comes to believe that the value in their achievement adheres not so much in what they've done, but in the fact somehow that it was they who did it. A contemporary example perhaps is those billionaires who seem incapable of being persuaded that they could do any wrong. Like 
the mystic who has realized their own divinity, the person who has become a billionaire is at serious risk of assuming that the wealth they enjoy comes not from what they've done or what has happened to them, but comes by virtue of the fact of them being a unique and special person who was always destined to make that money as a natural and proper expression of their nature. Put simply, with success comes the danger of us identifying with success. If we fall into the trap of mistaking what we've achieved for who we are, then we become the person who believes their own bullshit. And that can lead us wildly astray and have negative consequences. But also, even supposing we don't make that mistake and manage to avoid it, Nevertheless, something challenging and uncomfortable heaves into view at this point. Because if the danger upon success is identifying with it, then in order to recognise and appreciate and understand that success correctly, and in order to cherish and protect that success correctly, then we have to take a step back from it. We have to disidentify from it. But there's a real difficulty here. There's an ethical question. Because presumably this thing that we've achieved, this thing that we've been successful about, It's something that matters deeply to us. It's something that's very important to us. Because otherwise, why would we have been directing so much effort and attention into it in the first place? We're confronted with what appears to be a quite uncomfortable conclusion. That if there's something we genuinely, passionately care about, In order to make the very best success of that we can, then we have to disidentify from it to some degree, to hold it lightly, to take a step back from it. If we don't do that, we run the risk of merging with it, becoming too tied up, too entangled in it in that case falling into the trap of confusing our own personal interests and satisfactions with the actual object itself that we were striving to attain. We may want with all our heart and soul to achieve something, to give something of value to people. And yet it seems that in the nature of success itself can be this strange dynamic where if we identify too closely 
with that success, a weird short circuit takes place. And what we're actually doing is fulfilling our own egoistic desires, rather than serving the original goal that we set out to achieve. What's being described here is a certain dynamic, and it's this that I want to focus in upon. It's a dynamic in which we want to be wanted, we want to provide value and satisfaction. And yet, at the same time, there is a having to contend with a tendency, an inclination that we may not even be consciously aware of satisfy our own interests rather than those of others, even though this is the last thing consciously that we want to do, there's the danger of our own self-interest short-circuiting the whole thing. That same dynamic of needing, wanting to successfully realise something and that success being founded in the overcoming of our own tendency to short-circuit ourselves. It's that very same drama that's finding expression in the tarot card known as the chariot. And perhaps we need its wisdom to guide us. Because although that message of overcoming our own short-term self-interest in order to realise more impersonal goals might seem at first self-evident, there's actually something quite counterintuitive here that maybe needs to be explored. If there's any goal in life that we're striving to attain, if we're shutting down any feelings in some respect, if we find ourselves having to cultivate a degree of ruthlessness in order to get there, to whatever extent, are we not being inauthentic? Are we not bringing all of ourselves, all of our feelings, to the challenge at hand? And what will be the implications of that, if that's the case? Turning to the actual symbolism of this card, of this archetype, what do we find? There's a great deal of consensus among the tarot decks most popularly in use these days. The Marseille deck, the Rider Waite, Crowley's Thoth deck, all of them show a seated male figure arrayed in armour aboard a vehicle, some kind of cart with a canopy on top and wheels below being drawn by animals of some kind, in many cases simply a pair of horses. But in some representations, the cart is being drawn by mythical beasts. Or 
although the decks commonly in use these days depict the figure in the chariot as being male, that hasn't always been the case, and in older decks where depictions of this card have survived, sometimes the charioteer is female, and in those cases, rather than armour, she's been depicted as, in contrast, wearing kind of diaphanous robes and sometimes being blindfolded. This recalls, perhaps, traditional depictions of the goddess of fortune, or maybe even the goddess of justice, and brings sharply into focus one of the main issues presented in this card, the question of control. Maybe we wonder whether it's the goddess of fortune or justice who is deciding what direction this vehicle takes. But in those decks where the charioteer is just this guy in armour, who doesn't seem representative of any particular deity, and after whom this card isn't even named, it's not called the charioteer, it's called the chariot after all, then maybe what comes more into focus here is that this figure doesn't seem to be guiding the chariot at all. He's holding a scepter, a symbol of power, but there are no reins in his hands. He's not steering it. Whatever direction it takes will be determined by the beasts below. His function seems to be just to go along for the ride. There's a sense in this image that he's on display. The chariot is a means by which he displays and presents himself. By providing him with the opportunity to do that, could it be that there's a sense here of him having to concede in return? that the direction and speed that the chariot takes is maybe not his to decide. The triumpher of the seventh arcanum, writes the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, wears a breastplate, stands under a canopy, and is crowned. He holds in check the dangers of rage, megalomania and exaltation. He is sane. The suggestion here, perhaps, is that the armour and the finery that this figure is arrayed in, maybe these aren't simply tokens of his glory, but instead they're there for his protection. Because, hopefully, he has recognised he's not the one steering this vehicle. The power that moves it is a force of nature. It's not of his creation, and it's not at his bidding. 
This image, this archetype, seems to be encouraging us to reflect upon is the nature of success, victory, power. Suppose we realise some kind of goal or project. We find ourselves in a position of having achieved something or having won something. We may have put in lots of work to get there and part of that work may have been resisting temptations to be led astray, overcoming distractions and obstacles, and maybe personal traits and tendencies that might otherwise have led us to sabotage or short-circuit ourselves. But here we are. This is our moment of triumph, our moment of victory. What the chariot draws to our attention is that, although maybe to some extent we've managed to tame the beasts and yoke them to the front of the chariot, nevertheless, we're never really in full control of where this vehicle has taken us. At least not in control in the way that we might prefer to think we are and that we could be seduced into believing if the lessons of this image are not heeded. When we honestly confront the way the world is, it soon becomes apparent that power, success, victory, those don't proceed exclusively and directly from within ourselves. We always must rely to some degree, usually to the greater degree, upon resources, supports, assistance, in order to take ourselves to wherever it is that we want to go. Personal efficacy and personal success are like a vehicle, this card reminds us. We can ride it, but we can't entirely control it. When we ascend that vehicle, this always comes at the cost of having to put on armour. We can't just be who we really are in this vehicle. Not unless we're the goddess of fortune or the goddess of justice, maybe. We have to put on armour in order to protect ourselves. And that means that, necessarily, we were always at a slight remove from the world. This is a vehicle that we can be seen in. And our achievements and success justly celebrated. But it would be a mistake to imagine that we can ride it safely without armour. How many people have come to grief because they identified too closely with the success that they attained, which caused them to lose sight of the fact that it was the chariot that had taken them there rather 
than themselves the charioteer. There's a curious crossover, perhaps, with this archetype of the chariot and a certain type of film that has come to be known in the film industry as a star vehicle. Films were often built around star images, writes the film critic Richard Dyer. Stories might be written expressly to feature a given star, or books might be bought for production with a star in mind. Sometimes alterations to the story might be affected in order to preserve the star's image. This is what is implied by the term star vehicle, a term actually used by Hollywood itself. Dyer goes on to describe how certain types of films would be written with particular plots, particular characters, in order for a particular star to be able to bring to the fore and showcase certain attributes of their persona that they're famous for. So westerns would be written specifically with the persona of John Wayne in mind, for instance. Some star vehicle movies are among the all-time classics of cinema, such as The Wizard of Oz, for example, which was a star vehicle to showcase Judy Garland. But the curious thing about star vehicles is... Perhaps that more often than not, they turn out to be stinkers. They are often very far from among the greatest films. And often, the reason for this is precisely because they end up being too much centred around the personality of one person, the star. And very often with movie stars, we know exactly what we're going to get, even before we clap eyes on them. It's the possession of a very clear and familiar set of attributes that characterises a movie star in the first place. It's maybe only when a star vehicle movie manages to showcase a new or unexpected dimension of a movie star that the film as a whole manages to get lifted into a category above the average. An example here might be the film Pulp Fiction, which was written by Tarantino specifically as a vehicle for John Travolta, whose career and star persona was turning a little jaded perhaps the time before the film was released. But that's an exception, maybe. Generally, star vehicles are crummy movies. And they tend to be crummy because they tend to be focused around the familiar attributes of a specific person, rather than that person's attributes and talents being focused into presenting something greater than that person, contributing towards a movie that's about something more than just the talent of its star. 
This concept from Hollywood of the star vehicle offers us a useful analogy, perhaps. Because we might all like to think of ourselves as the star of our own movie. We all have our unique attributes and our talents. And we can direct these into achieving whatever it is that we want to achieve in life. But what sort of movie do we really want to make? What's the best possible kind of movie that we can make? As I've suggested, star vehicles apart from a few exceptions generally do not turn out to be the best films. The archetype of the chariot teaches us how it's so important not to confuse the vehicle with the person who rides it and not to confuse the success that completely deservedly we might attain in life with the role or the persona that we've had to put on in order to arrive at that success.